Let us pray. Heavenly Father, prepare us for your word. And I just admit I am humbled by it and convicted by it. I pray, Lord, that uh, the gospel would not just be for others, but it would be for us. And we would see that this morning in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. Okay, so who is rooting for the Chiefs today? Who's the Chiefs fans? Yeah, there it is right there. Yeah, John, this is your day, man. This is your day, bro. Man. How about who's rooting for the 49ers today? Yeah, Sharpie over there from California. Yeah, Josh. Yeah, I know it's hard for us Packer fans to root for the 49ers probably after last time. But uh, yeah, who's rooting for the commercials and the food today? Yes, awesome. Well, maybe a different category. Uh, so for those that do not like football or the Super Bowl, who here is Team Jacob? Any Team Jacob people here? Oh, the ladies, some of the ladies laugh, yes. How about Team Edward? Anyone Team Edward? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a Twilight reference if anyone didn't know what I was referring to. So isn't this a good way we don't make church decisions based on those kind of things? What if I brought the elders from the church up and I put my hand over each one of them and myself and we cheered for which one we liked the best? What if we made decisions that way? That would not be healthy. That would be ridiculous. Well, that's what was happening in the church of Corinth. Not an audience vote, people coming forward, but there were divisions in the church based on who they liked and who they followed. And what's even sadder about that is that they thought this is a healthy way for the church to go. So today, we are going to see a cure to the church in Corinth to help heal this sickness. So first, we're going to identify the symptoms of the church's sickness. Second, we're going to diagnose the disease. Third, we're going to locate the source of the sickness and then prescribe a treatment. I thought I would do it this way, considering we're all thinking about sickness, maybe because we've been sick in our own homes or the coronavirus, right, has swept everyone's fear in this country. So this is how we're going to go about um, ordering it today. Identifying the symptom of sickness in the church, diagnosing the disease, locating the source of the sickness, and then prescribing a treatment. So let's hear what's happening in the church in Corinth. Follow with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 10 through 17, and then we'll jump to chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Don't worry, we'll get back to chapter 1 and 2 in the following weeks. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? 
I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. Oh, I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with the words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For there is jealousy and strife among you. You are not of the flesh. Um, um, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos. Are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants, plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. The word of the Lord. We're just joining us. Welcome. We've been going through the book of First Corinthians. We just started last week. And uh, here is, I really shouldn't even call it a book. It's actually a letter written in 55 AD, just 20 years after the resurrection of Christ. See, this church has been started just a few years earlier in the largest Greco-Roman city in the Roman Empire. And it's planted not primarily, it's unique on the other churches that have been planted by Paul, started by Paul. It's not just Jewish converts, the majority, but instead it's Gentiles, non-Jews, who have been influenced by Roman society, Roman culture, and Roman wisdom. Very affluent Romans that are a part of this church plant in Corinth. And as we read this book, we realize that this church has some issues. But what's interesting, they don't think that they have issues. They think this is the way an organization runs based on what they know of Roman culture. This is what wisdom looks like to what they have seen. And this is what they believe is the way to maintain health in this organization to live the way that they're living. But God is communicating through Paul, no, the church is to be different than the society around. It is to be an alternate society. An alternate view of what the kingdom should be. One directed by love. And this church needs redirection. Say a caveat before I go any further. We have to remember that Paul is making a tough analysis of the church in the book, in this letter to Corinth. And many things he says hurt and are strong. But remember, the beginning of his letter, he cushions the blow. He says, God is faithful. God is doing a work in you. Even though it's difficult and hard right now, I believe he will complete this work in you. And he leads with grace. So as we go through this letter, I want us to always remember the grace and peace that Paul talks about in writing this letter and how he starts out this letter. So when we hear some things that might be tough on us, 
and might feel like, oh, I feel like he's speaking directly to me. We remember God is faithful to work in us. Well, let's start here. Verse 10 is really sets up the next four, cha- um, four chapters of the book. It's his appeal. His appeal to the brothers and the sisters. He appeals by not his own name, but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And again, these words can seem very rote, the Lord Jesus Christ. But these have very, you know, me- those are meaningful words and would shock people. Saying that, you know, this is the king. This is the Messiah. This is the Savior. And to say that in a culture that believed the Roman emperor was Lord and Christ, that would be a shocking thing to say. And you see, Paul, by saying, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, he is giving authority to his own words as the apostle. That he has been given this message by Jesus to be able to speak to the church. So his appeal is that, is this, that they would all agree and that there would be no divisions among you, but that you would be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. Now, when we hear these words in our individualistic society, we kind of maybe bluster a little bit. I don't think Paul means uniformity here. He doesn't mean that we all should be part of the Borg. Liking the same football teams or eating the same foods or whatever it might be. In fact, as we go later in the book of Corinthians in chapter 12, we see that Paul celebrates the diversity of the body. No, I think what Paul is talking about in uniformity here, it's actually the Greek word schismata, is the idea of being torn apart. That the very foundation of the gospel message, of the message that Jesus has been talking about, is being torn. And how is it being torn? He shows us some concrete examples of what's happening in the church. People are saying, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, who is Peter. And really, in the Greek, it's really saying, I am of Paul. Meaning, this is who I am, following this leader. I am of Apollos. I am of Cephas. See, for the Gentiles, for these people growing up in Roman culture, this is how organizations worked. And they brought this into the church arena. What you do is you maneuver and advance personal statuses and you elevate certain people and follow them. Apollos, he was a great orator. So we're going to follow him. Paul, he was a great academic, a Roman citizen, so we should follow him. Peter was the one closest to Jesus, and he's from the source, Jerusalem. So a group of people in the church follow him. Now, Paul and Peter and Apollos, they are not competing, but the people in Corinth are seeing it as a competition. And what they're doing is they are touting their connections to these individuals. And what's happened through touting their closeness to them, the influence that these people have given them, it's caused jealousy and strife, self-centeredness and arrogance in the church. See, these are the symptoms of the sickness that's happening in Corinth. But again, like I've said, 
they think they're just fine. This is how it works in their world. Cult of personality is a fine thing. The seeking for fame and elevating people is fine. Rallying people to your person's cause is the way that you move forward. I'm just very happy that we live 2,000 years later. We don't wrestle with the cult of personality in our age. That we don't elevate fame. That we don't attach ourselves to one person or another. That we don't write things on Facebook, blaspheming other people. It's a good thing we don't live in that age, right? It's amazing the human condition continues. That we say, I'm a part of this tribe. I'm a part of this group. We will pick anything to fight over. What person we want to marry the bachelor on the TV show. We fight about that. The thing is, that thinking, we think, oh, it's immune. It won't come into the church. That influence from what we see on the outside of cult of personality, it won't seep into here. Oh, how we are mistaken. I listen to Tim Keller. I am of Keller. I like Andy Stanley. I am of Andy Stanley. I am of InterVarsity. I am of Campus Crusade. I am of the PCA. See, this attitude that we are on some winning side in Christendom seeps even into our lives and into the church. It is dangerous. It breeds spiritual pride and disunity. My hope is that Emmaus Road, at Emmaus Road, we would see that the church is bigger than us. That we would pray for churches outside of our church. Churches that hold to the gospel. I am thankful that I get to get together with other men in the valley and pray for them and talk about my struggles and pray that their churches would grow and people would come to know the Lord through them. David Parks at Appleton Gospel, Max Kotzbeck at Community Church, B. Vang at The Refuge, A.J. Dudek at Appleton Alliance, Nathan Huber, who's here today at the Mission Church. That these are my brothers. I pray for their churches. I pray that they will succeed in advancing the gospel. See, there's a thing in our kind of sphere, called the reform sphere, the PCA sphere, that we take pride in being right theologically. And we put ourselves in this group of people that we found this small group of people that this PCA is, that we go through these ordination trials, that we hold to the same standards, that we have finally found each other in the church. And now we say, okay, um, because we finally found us each other, we will not divide. We don't have these problems and these issues anymore because we have organized ourselves in this group. It's amazing how we divide over things, isn't it? 
I'm from Wisconsin, and we have Wisconsin pride. Or I'm from the Fox Valley, and I have that pride. Oh, I'm from Appleton, and I have that pride. Oh, I am from Appleton West High School, and I have that pride. (laughs) Oh, I am in the Pierce Park neighborhood, and I have that pride. Oh, I'm on Story Street, and I have that pride. I'm in that house, and I have that pride. I take a bath in this shower. I have that pride. It just divides and divides and divides. Let me give you some inside baseball here of being in the PCA. We can even find issues in our little group of guys to divide over. And I am, of course, I'm a uniter, so I never have issues with other guys in my denomination. I never say, oh, they belong to that camp. Oh, they're the non-church planning group. They're the liberals. They're the conservatives. They have that stance on creation. They have this. They have that. Nothing of orthodoxy. But I will find something to divide. Whether it's personality or style or whatever it might be. I would I'd love, it's wonderful to see the diversity even in the PCA in our churches. To go to the different PCA churches in Wisconsin. To see the different styles that are available in them. Hopefully I've learned. Hopefully David has helped me to learn. And others that are my brothers. To realize that my brothers that I might disagree with actually have something for me. And can sharpen me. And help me see things that I do not see. Some of us hear these stories and we go, yes. See, that's what's wrong with denominations. This is wrong. what's wrong with organizational structure of the church and creeds. We are all the same. We are all under the banner of Christ. That is all that matters. That's why I find this verse 12 very intriguing. It says, I follow Paul or I follow Paulus or I follow Cephas or I follow Christ. Very interesting. He puts Christ in this list of cliques and groups. I don't think Paul was just saying, oh, this is what we should strive after the I follow Christ Because I think all these groups are trying to follow Christ. And also Paul, after this, makes a list that we should follow Christ. But I think what he's pointing out is, and making this a part of the list, is that there was a clique, there was a group in Corinth that said, we are not constrained by any leader like Apollos, Paul, or Peter. No, we just follow Christ. That's all that matters. Just following him But in so doing, they have formed their own group and clique. If you've studied church history, you realize this has happened through church history too. In the 19th century, the Church of Christ formed by a group of people who say, Oh, we just follow Christ. And then another group, the Disciples of Christ, split off from the Church of Christ. that said, We just follow Christ. And the truth is, when we have this kind of thinking, I just follow Christ, we can keep dividing until it just becomes us individually. Our subjective faith. Oh, I follow Christ and it means this permutation. 
or it means this kind of thing. See, Paul is walking a very fine tightrope. He's saying, don't form factions based on me. But at the same time, God has given me apostolic authority to communicate his message to how the church should be. That is the message in Corinth. It's not this do whatever you want, because guess what? Some people were saying it's okay if you sleep with your stepmom, because guess what? We should celebrate Christian liberty. I follow Christ. No, Paul's saying, guess what? He has given us boundaries within the organization of the church. See, this is also an incredibly hard line to walk in our individualistic society. Because what? We say, I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's a good thing to say. I follow Christ. Yes. But it doesn't mean you follow him on your own subjective mind or your own whims. Christ has given us a theological foundation. The church has structures and is talked about in this book with officers in church discipline and how it should be. So we need to make sure that we don't move to either end of the pendulum, which can be bad to say, oh, it's just just one group and it looks like this. And the other end, I can do whatever I dang well please on the other end. So these are the symptoms of the disease. And now he diagnoses what the disease is. See, they don't realize that they are tied, the symptoms that are, they're showing, to something that is really bad. And something that needs to be cured or it's going to be a problem. When our daughter Morgan was young, we would take her to the hospital many times because of her trouble breathing. And they would put her on oxygen, albuterol, and she would get better. Finally, they said, you need to see a pulmonologist. This is, this is a problem. And I remember the pulmonologist, he was a quirky guy. And he sat us down and said, you know, you've learned, talking to Aaron and I, and also talking to Morgan, you've all learned to cope with what Morgan has. And then he asked us some questions that had simple answers to them. Do you want to take regular trips to the hospital? What do you think our answer was? Oh, of course we do. No. Do you want to see long-term damage to Morgan and her body? Oh, yeah, sure. No, of course not. Do you want to risk her activity level to be lower that she cannot play with her sisters? No, of course not. And that's when he says, this is serious. You need to work on this. She needs medicine, consistency. She has asthma and it's bad. You've got to work on this. See, Paul then does the same kind of thing. In his quirky way. Imagine sitting them down or they're hearing this letter. And what does he say? He asks three questions like that doctor asks us three questions. Is Christ divided? No, of course not. He was one person that came in the flesh. 
that had one message. And he goes on, was Paul crucified for you? No, of course not. Jesus was crucified for us, not Paul. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? No, we were baptized in the name of Christ. You see, he shows them how ridiculous what they're doing is. He had to realize at that time, some people were saying, oh, guess who baptized me? It was Peter. So obviously it stuck more because he was closest to Jesus. Or it was Paul because he's better rhetorically. Or it was Apollos because he's this famed speaker. That what makes my baptism effective by who baptized me. No, what makes your baptism effective is not by those names or who did it. It's effective by what Christ has done in his name, in the Father, in the Son, in the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on and he's using language to be able to wake them up from their triumphalism. Verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. You see, people are saying, look, look at the rhetorical flourishes of Apollos. He is what will make the church move forward. Look at the entrepreneurial nature of Paul and his church planting. That is what the church needs. Look at the center of ministry in Jerusalem and Peter that holds to the law. That is what the church needs. You see, Paul is saying the power of the gospel is not through those things, but instead it's through the message of the cross, which is of what? Humility, sacrifice, laying down your life. That is the power of the message of the gospel. Where do we find the power of the church? You know, if we have the right conference speaker or go to the right kind of group, then it will work. Then there will be change in the church. Maybe if I recreate my positive church experience from another church I was in, then it will work. Maybe if we play the same music that I get an experience from when I was 16 years old, now, then the power of the gospel will work. I remember what it was for me. Maybe if I recreate Joe White in Canica camps, in my experience growing up there, if I recreate that same experience, then God will really work. I'm thankful that God continues to work on me. And I realize the real power is not in some person, not in some place, not in some experience, but the power is in Christ and the cross. You've heard me say this before. It's not from me. I will say it again. What we win people with is what we win them to. 
What we win people with is what we win them to. This is a serious disease. If we win people with a personality and then that person fails, what do you think will happen? If we win them with fun experiences and when those fun experiences end, what will happen? If we win them that you'll have wealth and power, what happens when there is suffering? You wonder why the gospel might be in trouble in America when we've elevated what we've won them with instead of we've looked at what we've won them to, which is Christ. The power of the gospel is in the rescue of Christ and his suffering and his dying for a world in danger. And we've moved the focus off of the gospel. Well, we've seen the symptoms. We've seen the problem with this disease, a focus off the cross. The symptoms are the division. Now let's locate the sickness. Chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. You see, this is a congregation, as we'll get back to in the end of chapter 1 and chapter 2, that has touted that they are wise. They are bragging that they are spiritually gifted as a congregation. But Paul now makes a very stern rebuke. You are not living by the Spirit. You are not living by wisdom. But instead, you are living of the flesh. And the truth is, you can't digest heavy foods. You can't have a rich porter or a rich beer. You have to drink Corona Light or whatever it might be. You need something thick and deep. And you can't digest it. See, for them, wisdom was this. If we can identify good teachers, teachers who are eloquent, that's their identity of who's good. We can identify what person to follow. Then we are actually being wise. But through this kind of thinking, they've caused division has caused pride and caused clicks. And Paul is saying the symptoms that you're showing, the disease that you have shows you are not eating meat. You are still drinking milk. You see, the problem is that they cannot digest the message of the gospel, which is real meat. They have not digested the death, resurrection of Christ. To them, that message is foolish. How can it be that simple that we are saved by grace through faith? See, Paul is saying you are wrestling with this arrogance, this hatred towards others, this hatred towards neighbor. Because you can't digest that you are a sinner that is saved by grace, that you respond with, to others with love and peace and patience. 
I think this, these verses, verses 1 through 4, probably have some of the greatest misunderstanding in the church. And this is the misunderstanding that I've heard. There is the basic milk level. This is what people say. This is the basic milk level, right? This is the grade school learning. And that's the gospel, right? Then there's the graduate level meat, right? That's the theological stuff, right? Okay, that is the very thing that Paul is combating against that thinking in this church. It's called Gnosticism. The idea that there's some hidden wisdom. That if I'm in the Christian club long enough, I will learn these hidden truths, you know, that are behind closed doors. That's the meat, right? No, Paul never withheld the meat. They just can't digest it. See, the difference between the mature and the immature is how they process the revelation that Paul has given. Hear me, maybe you've just come to this church for the first time, you're visiting or whatever, and you're figuring out this Christianity thing. There is no hidden wisdom. Let me give it to you right now. Jesus Christ died for you, a sinner, and rose from the dead so that you might have life. That's the meat. That's it. And I know what people say about us, right? Presbyterians. Emmaus Road. Right? This is where the meat is. Right? Emmaus Road. These are heady people. I mean, that pastor makes literature illustrations. He talks about the reformers. There's no way he would mention Twilight ever. Hear me, please don't come to Emmaus Road because you want to hear words like superlapsarianism. I want to know all the intricate details about covenant theology. These are good things, and I love learning about them. They are wonderful. But I know people that know those things backwards and forwards, and they're still full of pride and gossip and anger. Because guess what? They have not digested the true meat. Good thing I digested it, right? I don't get jealous over other people's ministry. I don't puff up the people that I follow and who I listen to. I don't try to avoid suffering at all costs. Thank you, Lord, for kindly feeding me milk. And being patient with me in my maturing. So that I would live in line of the reality of the gospel. That I am a sinner in need of your grace. And my identity is I am your son. That is meat. That I continue to forget over and over again. And that's why I need the gospel every single week. See, that pride in me. That division in me. Is the symptoms of the disease. In the diagnosis of the disease that I'm believing, I'm the solution. 
And the source of the failure is failing to live in the truth of the gospel. Now Paul prescribes a treatment. An antidote. And the antidote isn't feel bad about yourself. You can't do anything. No. He gives us a beautiful picture, doesn't he? A picture of working on a farm. You know, working on a farm is not supposed to be a battlefield. It's not supposed to be a place of competition. But working on a farm should be a place of cooperation. A farm that works well is people understand their roles. Some water, some plant. But also is understanding this perspective. God is the one that makes it grow. See, God is not saying that we are useless. In fact, he's not judging us on our productivity. But he's judging us on our faithfulness. So much of the division and unhealth in the church is by us looking left and right, comparing our productivity to others. Oh, I wish I was like them. But sometimes our responses, and I wish I was like them, is why are they like that? Why do they do ministry in that way? Why are they not as extroverted as me? Why are they not as introverted as me? Why don't they share the gospel with every single person that they see? Why do they like to cook for people so much? And you see, instead of celebrating the beauty and diversity of the church, instead we see the way that other people do it, and sometimes their productivity, and the reason they can reach people and we can't, and we get angry and we get jealous. And it causes division in the church. I praise God that David Emke is not like me. He sees things that I don't see. He's better at grammar than I'll ever be. And he edits so many things that I do that are sent out. So you guys don't have to deal with my grammar. I praise God. The way he wired Perry. That he can go to a bar or a restaurant and share the gospel with just anyone. Instead of me saying, oh, we shouldn't do evangelism like that. I should say, praise God that he's given Perry that gift and that skill. See, the church is healthy when we see it's not a battlefield, but a family planting a vineyard together. That we all rejoice together. Guess what? That the harvest will come. Right? We saw that last week with Mark sharing his story and Mary sharing her story. Oh, how my pride would like to say, guess what? I said the right things for Mark to come to faith in Christ. No. Other people planted. Other people watered. 
God is the one that made it grow. You see what can happen when we work in that kind of way as a church? Do you see the fruit that could happen when we relate to other people in the culture in that kind of way? Such beauty. You know, this is our nourishment for that. We need the meat. We need the gospel. We need to ingest it into our lives. We need to know that we are sinners that like to divide so quickly. And here is Christ united for us. So again, this is not a Presbyterian table. It's not a Maus Road table. It's for those that say, I am under him, Christ. I follow him. And I need to be in a church. Some of you continue to take the table and not say, I'm going to commit to the church. Commit to a church. Be a member. Realize that you cannot do it by yourself. That's the way that it's set up. That is what we're going to see in Corinthians. Church discipline is good. Officers are good. Structure is good. That's the way that God has set up his kingdom in this world.